my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. In part one of this interview with tackle dealer Tony Carriage at his shop at Eastbourne, we explored a range of topics centred around observations based on tackle sales. Today, we're linking up away from the shop, where I'd like us to look in a bit more depth at the fishing itself. Time to look at your basic love of angling, which, as we've already heard, through your representing England in both fresh and salt water, can be very wide-ranging. My basic love of angling, uh, it started off with course fishing over Halsham, which is near Eastbourne. My dad used to have a factory in Halsham, and I was only about sort of eight or nine, and I used to fish every day in my summer holidays and everything, and he'd pick me up at night, I'd stay there weekends, and he was brilliant, he'd just sort of drop me off in the morning, pick me up a couple of days later, you know, and he'd catch a carp up to seven, eight pounds, which were massive then, years ago, they were big carp, so that's how I started off really, and then after that I sort of got, got a bit of a passion for sea fishing, and me and a pal of mine, Trevor Rooney, ended up fishing for England, we used to go up the pier when we were about 11 and 12. We used to always fish on the pier. And uh, we used to have some cracking times. We'd sort of like done everything. But what happened, I drifted out of it a little bit. And then, like you do, playing football and different stuff. And then, all of a sudden, I started up bass fishing when I was about... I was about 19, 20. About 22, sorry. And I started bass fishing big time up Beachhead Rocks. And I caught some cracking bass and... Uh, I think it was 1981, I was on the front page of Angling Times. The headline was Beauty and the Beast, I think I was the beast. <laughs> John Darling took the photographs, and I had three bass, and uh, they were like um, £9.1, one, pound fourteen, and £7.12. And also caught a big eel that night, a massive pout whiting. But John come and photographed them, and... He was convinced at first I'd caught them out of a dinghy, you know, because they were so big. Um, but obviously it was proven that I didn't do that. And uh, I used to go up, live up the rocks up Beachhead, and I fished on this sugarloaf all night. My mate had a, a five-pounder and a five-and-a-half. And Trevor Rooney was next to me in the next outcoat, and he's a brilliant angler. And he was just about 30 yards away, and he, he'd come round at nearly high tide, and he said, turn on. It's no good. And I said, you're having a laugh. You know, I said, look here, you can't believe it. And he was just 50 yards away and he never had a bite. It's quite weird. Whether they were shoaled up on the right-hand side of the groin, I don't know. But we just absolutely nailed it that night. And that went on to be, a say, I know that uh, one of the reps and from Abu, he said, once you was on that front page of Angling Times, you made it because it's big time. You know, years ago, Angling Times was like a massive thing, wasn't it? Angling Times was bigger than Sea Angler and everything in the early days, as you know. And then I went on from there and I thought, I'm going to have a go at match fishing. And uh, that's how it all started. I'd had three years of bass fishing up rocks. You used to go every night. You used to go out and get the crabs in on the low tide. I used to come home and have a sleep. And I used to be up in rocks two o'clock in the morning every night. Always got loads of bass. The strange thing is with bass fishing, though, you find a guy goes up there, he's on holiday, puts a big hunk of squid on and gets an 11-pound bass off the beach, if not bigger. And all them years I'd done it, my biggest on the beach was only £9.1. It's incredible, isn't it? I've had hundreds of them. But that's the way it goes. You you do find these guys that just go pleasure fishing, they'll catch a big one quite often in the summer. And then I got into match fishing, I started, I, I found my passion then, really, because I absolutely loved it, and I did years, I did probably, I don't know, 15 years of match fishing. I won a lot of big matches, uh, 
I won the British Peer Open that was sponsored by the Daily Mirror. I won the Alan Ray match, which was a thousand pound down at Hayden Island. I had a four pound, four ounce place and three other place. And I absolutely hammered, won that really well. And then we went to Dunkirk and fished a match there. 345 anglers, I think. Oh, I had a hangover. We'd been out all night drinking and had a great time. And I, hour into the match, thought, got no chance, you know. And all of a sudden I caught a couple of flounders and then a couple more and then a mullet. And I ended up winning this Dunkirk, which was massive. You know, there's all world champions there and everything. And I won the whole thing. That was terrific. Especially when you make the effort to go over there and fish it. So that was a really good sort of pinnacle, you know. And then, as I said earlier on, then my wife passed away a few years later and I, I won quite a few other matches when I used to do it, but I didn't, you know, the, the big ones were the ones I mentioned really, you know. And, uh, really like it. But I also like me carp fishing. Let's say I won that world championship 2004. I'd just come back from France last week and, I had a catfish out there two years ago, which was the late record of 129. It was 129.14. It bottomed the scales out, so the record was 130, but I never bothered to claim it or anything because yeah, I'm not worried about a free holiday. The guy who runs it is brilliant to me anyway, Michelle. But we went over last week and we had cats to £75. I had one of 60. But I was really pleased because he lost all his carp, and I had four carp just over 30, which was nice because 32 the biggest, because the carp seemed to have disappeared over the years, and uh, I fished it quite hard and did well. But I'm hoping to go back there in October, because uh, four of us go over, and uh, I did a video on it when I come back. It's marvellous over there, you know, really nice place. As you've just hinted, over the course of your angling and also in the tackle shop, you've come into contact with a lot of good anglers, some of whom have gone on to become household names. So tell us a bit now about some of these characters. Yeah, I mean, I never fished with Matt Hayes, but I worked with him with Shimano. He's a lovely guy, Matt Hayes. He's a fantastic PR man for Shimano, and he was a real... I got really friendly with Matt. I I went to Cuba with him on holiday, and uh, we just... uh, There was a hurricane at the time. I think they followed me all around the world, and of course no one really fished. It was such a shame, because we was going to have it all sorted out to do some fishing. So we only got one day's boat fishing, and of course, you know, that was on different boats. I'm really friendly with John Wilson as well. He came to the Gambia, I won the Gambia, and John came along the first day, and I couldn't work him out, because he said, oh, you've been lucky, you know, I had this 11-pound butterfish, and I had a load of fish, and I fished really hard, you know. I think some of these guys, they don't realise that sea angling is skillful. They think you just chuck it in the water and hope for the best. Well, he photographed me the first day for sea angler, and he come back down the second day, I won my section, and the second day I won my section again. And he said, um, oh, you've been lucky again. And I thought, see what about lucky? And I was quite miffed about it, you know, and I thought, oh, I'll just keep quiet, say nothing. Anyway, he presented the prizes of the Gambit, it was well heavily sponsored by Masterline. And after the second year, he realised that certain people were winning it all the time through casting. And then I remember him making a speech a couple of years later, and he said, if you can't cast like Norman Message, Alan Yates and Tony Kerridge, and don't bother to come because you're not going to win anything. <laughs> it was quite bland, really, but he was telling the truth. But even he had to learn what was going on. But John said to me, he went out to South Africa to Port Elizabeth, and he went to Jeffreys Bay. He's actually 
told me off big time for this and he came back and I fished for England there and I caught two sharks, two gully sharks and no one caught a fish at all. It, everyone blanked, all the South Africans, everyone. And apparently, because of this, I'm a bit of a legend out there and as soon as he got there, like he's, he's the legend, isn't he, John Wilson, and he said to me, he said, I can't believe it, everywhere I go, they talk about Tony Kerridge. He said, I just can't believe you. He said, why haven't you written a book? And I said, well, I just haven't got round to it and I haven't got to... He said, Tony, you're a legend in South Africa. He said, you've got to write a book. And I'm now writing. I think I was telling you, I'm writing a book. I'm halfway through it. And uh, I don't know, it might sell, it might not. But there's some interesting stuff in it because there isn't a lot I haven't done over the years. But uh, he was a great guy, John Wilson. Alan Yates I've fished with for years. He's a terrific guy. He throws his toys out the brand sometimes, but that's because he's a competitive angler. But he's one of the best blokes company-wise been on holiday with, he's great, he's good fun, he has a laugh, that's what it's all about. And I found um, in the Cartwell when we won the World Championship, there was people I met, Frank Warwick, he's top Charlie, he's a really nice guy, most of them are just normal, you know what I mean, they just want to get on with their life and have a laugh, but I think it's a fine line between making it big time and half making it, I always feel like I half made it, if you know what I mean, some of them they just... Without being rude, I don't, I'm no disrespect to not talk about Frankie or anyone like that. But some of these guys, they make a name for themselves, and without being rude, they're not really top class anglers. They get away with it. And I've always thought that names are a big thing, the way a name spills off your tongue, you know, and some bloke will have a nice name and all of a sudden he's a hero. But that's the way of fishing in it, and that's the way it goes. But there's not many of them I haven't met and sat down with and have a chat. Dave Lane's a lovely guy. He loves his fishing. He went on to work for JRC and that. Tim Paisley, what a lovely guy he is. You know, when we fished for England, carp fishing out in France, he was absolutely brilliant. Looked after me and Mick. He's a legend, he is. He does a lot for carp and He's got the magazine. I think he's retired from the magazine now and I think his uh, daughter runs it. But what a really nice guy, you know. What about John Darling, who you mentioned earlier? Oh, John Darling was a, a big friend of mine. John was one of the pioneers of Dungeness. You had Leslie Moncrief and all this, but John and his crowd, they used to go down there every week, and I used to go as well. But I didn't go with John, but we were good friends. And they fished Dungeness all the time, and they had massive catches of cod. You used to get Terry Carroll down there from Ziplex. And you had a right, the same crew used to go down there all the time. And I used to go quite a bit, but John was an absolute legend. He, he he just got obsessed with bass in the end. and I mean, did he catch some bass? And he knew his stuff. But me and John were really good pals. It was such a... He died of cancer about four or five years ago. It's such a shame, you know, because he was a smashing guy. He was going to write a book for me because, obviously, I wanted someone to edit it and, unfortunately, he passed away, you know. But uh, really nice bloke, John. Uh, some people didn't like him, but they didn't know him, you know. Some people... That, they contradict people, but if you don't know people, I mean, Dave Lewis, I've been to Dave's house, he's a cracking bloke, Dave Lewis as well, been on holiday with him to Kenya, nice guy, you know, most of them are. I've been privileged to meet most of them over the years, especially with the angling shows and everything, because I did loads of them, and of course I was always sort of rubbing shoulders with all the guys, and it's nice to know them when you go away. I remember Ivan Marks, Freshwater angler, he was the best, you know I me. Mean? And uh, Ivan Marks, 
he was just such a lovely bloke. He was a legend when I was a kid. And uh, I went on holiday with Alan Scott Hall. He's fantastic. Bob Nudd, he's okay. They're all good blokes, you know. But it's been a privilege to meet them all over the years. Now, over the years, I've seen pictures of yourself and Norman Massage with some truly amazing dinghy holes of fish, particularly Big Cod. But it's as a sure match angler that a lot of people will best remember you. So give us a more detailed flavour now of some of your sea angling exploits. Yeah, um, when I first started, I was privileged to have a brother-in-law who was brilliant at boat fishing. And I remember years ago, he used to find the wrecks with a hand-bearing compass. We used to park one boat up, <laughs> go about another 500 yards, get the bearing off that boat. And it was incredible. To find a wreck was so hard years ago, and you don't realise how hard it was. And, of course, he was a pioneer of finding wrecks and everything, Norman. And he's one of the best boat anglers I've known. And I had the privilege of fishing with him and my cousin Bob for years and years. We caught so many fish. We had to keep it quiet sometimes. But the thing was, it, it sparked me in a way. As I go out of the boat now, and you know how easy it is with a GPS, and basically, I don't know what I'm doing because I've been spoiled. All I do is get in the boat with Norman and go and catch fish. So for a long time there, I couldn't even use a GPS because I was spoiled, you know. Um, but they used to find these wrecks, and I remember one day he found a place called the Deep Hole off of Eastbourne, which is now on the charts. And I think they kept it quiet for two years. They had so many cod out of it. And finally, someone pinged them on it, come past and pinged the numbers. It's a mark out here about 14 mile out off Eastbourne, and it's well-renowned, and some of the fish that come out of it are phenomenal. But can you imagine having it yourself... Read it to ourselves for nearly two years, and monkfish and uh, anglerfish and all kinds of things, you know, and thousands of cod. I was privileged, I say, to go out with him for years, and some of the fish we caught was amazing. He's just probably the best boat angler going, you know, he's 75 now, bless him, but he still fishes twice a week, and uh, he's always out in the boat, and he's good, and he, he inspired all my beach fishing, really, because without Norman, I wouldn't have done it. But, um, no, he's good, and then, he sort of fished with me for years. I then got a little bit more serious and I started winning a few things. I mean, when I went to Daily Mirror Pier one, there was over 100 anglers on the pier. You had to qualify first and I managed to win that up on Blackpool Pier. And then the following year, I went in it and I couldn't believe it. It was, again, 90 people at the pier and I qualified again and I come fourth in the final again. So... That's what I was saying to you about, you get a bit of confidence about something, you win something once and you feel like you can do it again. But that was great, I mean there was Stan Peter from The Sun and they presented me this massive great big cup, the Daily Mirror Cup, and I won about 300 quid, which is probably like a thousand pound then. And then, as I say, I won the Alan Ray, I won countless matches, you know. Not as many as my mate Trevor Rooney, he's, he's the open man, he, he, he went on to fish for England, and he was my mate, and he's won so many opens. But you need that bit of luck to win an open. I mean, I can probably count hundreds where I've come second or third. You need that little edge of luck to win. And I've been lucky enough over the years to win a few big ones. And then I, when I took the break for 10 years, I came back and I won two opens in a row. And now last year, I've had the best year ever, but I haven't won an open. So you need a bit of luck. You know, when I first come back the first year, I, I won the Gambia. It took me years to win that. The first time I went, I should have won it. I had a fish on, which is the biggest fish of my life, and they reckon it was over 110 pounds. 
and it was a guitar fish, I see it and everything, and no one could gaff it, everyone was scared. So I had the rod, and everyone was scared to go near it. My brother-in-law, Norman, wouldn't gaff it. The Irish guy said he would have gaffed it, John O'Brien, but he won the match, so he wasn't going to gaff it for me. And the match was over, and I'm fishing, I got this thing on, and I had it on for nearly an hour. And it's right on my feet, and in hindsight now, all I had to do was just stop and just wait for the tide to go out. It was stranded, really, and I just couldn't get it. And in the end, one of these coloured guys threw the gaff into it second time, and it just tore off, and it just got off the line. It was ridiculous, really. You learn by your mistakes, and I made a few, you know, but that's the biggest one I ever made, and it cost me the Gambia. But luckily, I went on, I think it was five years later, and won it, and it... Buried it a little bit by winning it. You know, that year I came third. But I already gaffed a stingray of Norman's, for, which was £52, which won us the money anyway, because we won the heaviest fish, which was £500. But it was just, maybe if I'd have got that fish in, that really would have made me, because it was the biggest fish I've ever lost on the beach. I've had sharks to hundred and well, £120, but that was probably as big, if not bigger, but it would have been a better quality fish. Sharks in South Africa, they catch quite a few, and... As you'll see now, they get 300 pounders and all that at Namibia, at Swakamund. So, you know, it's, that, that would have been the best fish ever. And unfortunately, you go back there now, Phil, and they've gone, you know. You might catch a stingray or a guitar fish and it's 10 pound or you'll get the odd one at 20. And you might get them if you go fishing at night, but these were rampant in the competition and it was last cast. I cast it as far as I could. It was my last cast of the day. I knew I was going to come third in the match overall, without a doubt. And the thing took off, and it just went, I just couldn't stop it. I had four turns of line left on a 525 mag, and I just thought, well, I've got one choice here. I just went into the water up to my knees, if not further, and just followed it and went in with it and got some line back. And the, the sad thing is I pulled it over two gullies all the way in, and it really was the fault of the organisers, because they shouldn't have let these young coloured guys near the rod. But all of a sudden they're swimming round it and acting like nutters. And next minute one of them threw a silly gaff in it. I didn't even know he was going to do it. And of course it tore off on the surface like mad. And I just lost it. <laughs> Another time, eh? <laughs> yeah, I've bought fish to myself quite a few times over the years with grain pulling. And we noticed a decline offshore. In fact, I even got married there and had my honeymoon catching cassava and captain fish. Now that's the way to do it. Did you? Yeah, well, we, we, when I first went, I mean, it was fantastic fish. I went for 10 years, and uh, I think I went in about 1990, and there was over 90 people in the match, and yeah, you was just catching fish. It was incredible, you know. Chuck out, big sort of like Jack Trevallis and everything, stingrays, a lot, you know, and then, of course, it's just deteriorated, like everything, I'm afraid. There was a lot of... Uh, Corruption going on out there, though, with nets and stuff like that, and people trawling it, unfortunately. But uh, it's like everywhere, it's all depleted, hasn't it? Namibia, unfortunately, looks to have gone the same way too. Yeah, Namibia's same. They go to mile 100 now. When I caught my sharks there, when I fished for England, um, it was mile 8. Now they go all the way miles further and further, mile 100 they fish. So that's a long way further. You go to mile eight now, I don't think there's anything there. I'm not sure, but, you know, within reason, they go further and further. And when I went to Smackamund, there was nothing there. It's just mud huts. There's all the uh, hotels there now and everything, I think. But no one had ever been there. You know, it's quite quite an eye-opener, really. Wasn't that where you had your England team debut? 
I fished in South Africa there twice for England. I think it was just after that and my wife passed away and I jacked her in. The sad thing is I was on a bit of a hype when my wife passed away. I was fishing really well. I'd learnt my casting further. I just hit 242 on a field and I was doing so much better. Everything was coming together, you know, and then, of course, I just switched off and just didn't do it anymore. I just, I, I don't know, I never went for 10 years. I, I went on and off. I went to Gambia. I went to America. I'd done fishing and I tried to do a bit of marlin fishing, a bit of selfish, and just move everything around and just... But I, I couldn't go max fishing anymore. Fortunately, my mate Keith Erridge, about... It was about four years ago, just turned around to me and said, look, you're really missed, you want you to come? And I said, well, I don't know about that. And it was quite... I was at the bar with him and that, and he said, look, you're really missed on the scene. You, and, of course, I'll come back to it now, and I bet someone wish I haven't, because I'll get involved in all the politics, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, basically... I don't know, I think you've got to have characters in it. You know, he said to me there's no characters left in it, so I now enjoy my fishing more than ever, really. So it's good. Looking back on those photographs of small boats filled with big fish by yourself, Norman and Graham Pullen, how far down the pan has the fishing slipped since those days? Oh, it was a lot better. I think the way I can explain it is when I first went boat fishing, you just went out in the boat, you just put the anchor over, right? And then the second time... Probably four years on from that, <laughs> you went out in the boat and you had to find a mark, like a landmark or whatever, and you fished off a certain mark. And uh, stick another ten years on that, and a, a mark isn't no good, and you've got to find a wreck. And it, I watched it go from nowhere, just chuck the pick over, to a mark, to the tower, or something like that, the light tower, fish around the tower, because there's always fish, you know, certain features... And now, if you don't go wrecking, you won't catch nothing. And half the wrecks are empty. It's such a shame. And I know they are. They go further and further afield. This deep blue from Eastbourne, God knows how many miles he does. He catches cod, but he's right down on the Basserelle Bank, and he's 40 mile out and nearly the French coast. And it's quite scary, really. You know, when I used to go with Chris Martin from Nicaria, who was a legend in Newhaven, he'd just go out, fill up with cod. They used to kind of dodge the wreck. If they didn't have people they wanted, they'd dodge the wreck, leave a few cod there for the next day, and they'd go out every day and just take a portion of the cod. Easy. But now it's just hard work. You've got to work harder and harder at it. There's a lot of red tape in the boat fishing scene. All health and safety now. You, it's not easy just to get... Years ago, you could have perhaps bought a charter boat, got a skipper and run it. Now you've got loads of things you've got to have, all health and safety stuff. Everything's got to be spot on. A bit like the hotel business, really. You've got to make sure it's all good. But I've definitely seen a massive deterioration. We used to just catch so many fish, and we go out now. We have some good days, don't get me wrong. I mean, I caught a lot of bass a couple of weeks ago, a huge amount of bass, and uh, it was terrific fishing. But that happens once a year. They shoal up, you get lucky, and if you're the boat that's out there, you'll catch a load. But then you... I remember me and Colin, we went out the following week, and I said, look, if we get any bass, we're going to keep the ones at about £7, and we're going to put back anything under that, because oh, it's quite sad, really, we're going to put them back, and we get enough for what we need. And we went out there, because we caught a lot, I caught a lot the week before, and we got, got this mark off Beachhead, and I had one pelt by about 12 o'clock, and I thought, you're having a laugh, you know. And we ended up, luckily, we went, we'd done a wreck a bit further out, and we got about, I think we had about 12 bass, 
and we had a good day. We got a night just about what he wanted for a barbecue. He had at his son's barbecue, so he was looking to get a few. And uh, we put a couple back, kept the bigger ones, so we had a good day. But it's really hard work now, you know. I mean, Graham's coming down next week to do an article on bass with me. And uh, we'll get a couple. We'll live bait and get a couple of nice ones. But you don't go out there and get hundreds anymore. It's been hammered. And my boy done it for a living, Chris. And he's had to give it up because can't make enough money. And there was five or six out of Eastbourne Arbor did it for a living. Now there's about three. So it gets tougher and tougher. I sort of think a lot of it, Phil, is the nets, but they've got to make a living. It's difficult to just turn around and say, oh, it's the nets and doing this and doing that. They're earning a living. We're just going fishing. So it's two sides to the coin, really. But it's certainly hit the mackerel stocks. I don't know about where you are, but this year we've had no mackerel whatsoever. And they put it down this, I mean, some big Scottish trawler. He paid a million for the boat or something. And the first time out, he got nearly a... I know, X amount of mackerel where they all show up and he's really depleted. I'm sure it is something to do with that because mackerel, as you know, are two a penny and we've really struggled this. We're just starting to get a few in the boats now and a guy had five on the beach yesterday and normally we've got loads of mackerel by now. They're all coming in buying feathers. So there's another thing where you get knocked back. There's nothing, you know, it's your bread and butter fish. I mean, everything rolls around mackerel. If they take the mackerel, there's no food chain. Mackerel more expensive than bass at the moment down here, in a shop, I think. <laughs> so how has all of this affected the charter boat scene? Has it, for example, weeded out the cowboys, leaving only the good ones? In a lot of areas, more strips are pretty much individuals these days, whereas once it would have been full charter bookings. Certainly at weekends. We've got about six in our harbour, but there's obviously room for everyone. We've got a boat panther. And he doesn't go as far as his deep blue, but he probably makes more money than all of them. One thing I will say that has been brilliant is place out of Eastbourne. It's been marvellous, you know. You can get 40 places a day quite easily. Use a spoon and you just drift off of from near enough the tower at Eastbourne. You drift right down to Hastings and you will get them. And they've had hundreds of places. So he takes them out there quite often. He gets a few places and he'll anchor up near the tower and he'll get a few dogfish and a few other fish. And, and it, he's, he does quite well. And he gets some cod as well, because it's rocked by that tower. There's been a lot of cod this year that are small. But, you know, what What the difference is, when I went with Norman, you get a cod and it was £20. And you get a cod now and you think, oh, that's a nice cod. And it's £5. That's where you're seeing the, the big depreciation. Well, Dad once said he had three cod on the line. And I swear to you, they're all over £15. And he just dropped a set of feathers. He's got three of them. And I think I've done it myself, but not quite so big, you and me. And I think, what's he doing? Why is he taking so long to get them up? And they're huge, you know. But now, if you get a £20 cod, it's a monster. That one I had on the beach at £15 in the winter, £14, 14 ounces. I mean, that's phenomenal off the beach here. We haven't had nothing like that for years. They're just not there. I mean, you can go up here of a place called Copper Shoal in the winter, and you can fish there, and you can get some nice ones of 15 and the odd one of 25, but you really got to put more and more effort. You know, as this is the thing what I'm saying to you. As the fishing has got harder, we've got better at it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be catching nothing. You know, guys now can cast miles on the beach, so therefore they can catch more fish than when... Uh, I think I was telling you, when I first started with Norman, he caught all these cod, he used to get 15 pounders, and I wasn't... When me and Trevor Rooney were younger, we, were, we couldn't cast far enough. 
So we went down there, we were kids. If only I'd have been at a cast a long way 40 years ago, well, I think it was 50 years ago, the sea was alive with massive cod. You had to get out there a little way. It was like a silly little rod, and I was only about 10, 11 years old, so I couldn't cast. But he used to come home with massive cod. It's the same in the boats. It's all depreciated, I'm afraid, and you will get less and less charter boats. There's one pulled out the harbour the other week, and he's disappeared. And obviously he's not getting the bookings with the recession and everything that was on. What do you put the decline in fish stocks down to then? And what could or should be done to reverse this trend, if at all it's even possible now? Well, they got man-made reefs in um, America, and they reckon they work really well. They put all these tyres in and everything, and make these... It takes about three years to work, but the fish get attracted to it in the end because it's a feature. Um, the only way I can see of it is that or preserve, like these nursery areas you're getting for bass are good. you just got to preserve everything, really, if you can, and just somehow stop. I think it's more these foreign trawlers. It's not all our trawlers. They just sneak in here at night. They've totally ruined. You go into Spain, you see these stupid little fish on the slab, and they've ruined their place. Don't come and ruin ours, you know, but unfortunately it's hard to monitor it because they're allowed in. It's quite sad, really, and, and it's got to be... The one thing I have noticed, which is very important, I missed out, is that this is my theory of uh, when the beam trawlers come through in the boats and they smash up all the ground and all the food, I mean, that's what happens, right? All of a sudden, in the last two years, we've been catching hundreds of dogfish on the beach, and we don't catch them here on the beach. Now, all I can think of, they're three mile out in dogfish. The beach fishing has been phenomenal over the past couple of years. It's the only thing that's improved. And I think that, basically, what happens is, these fish, they're starving. There's thousands of lugworm down Pemsley Bay and Eastbourne. And I think they've been intelligent enough to think, there's no food here, it's all smashed up. We're going to go inshore. And I think there's been more, the beach fishing has been better than ever in Eastbourne. There's no doubt about it. And I think it's down to these fish are starving and they've come in shore as a last ditch to eat lugworms, there's thousands of them, and fish that you normally catch on crab. Now, you know full well that a dogfish, well, it'll eat mackerel. They love mackerel, don't they? And sometimes if you're fishing a match, you put a bit of mackerel on, you might get a dogfish. The, the odd one was around. They just love lugworm. They don't want mackerel. You go down there and at one of our matches and they'll eat lugworm. And always a dogfish will eat mackerel. And they don't want it. You can just be fishing away. And I think we had a match uh, a couple of months ago and there was something like nine dogfish or eight dogfish weighed in. And they all took lugworm. And it, it's a changing world. I find it really weird. <laughs> but it's certainly made a difference. The answer then is to vote UKIP then, is it? Well, I met him and... Uh, <laughs> Never trust a man in red trousers. <laughs> I don't know. He, he's got a good idea, but I don't know about the whole party policies. Some of it's good, isn't it? And basically, some it's got to be done. Some it's got to give. Maybe it's it's woke all the rest of them up, isn't it? I'm actually trying to line up Farage for an interview, looking at the politics of the common fisheries policy. He's also a very keen angler himself, who likes to specialise in catching bass. Yeah, yeah. I met him at Birmingham, and I had a chat with him. And he seems okay, you know, um, he likes his fishing and something's got to be done in this country somewhere along the line because we just keep taking and taking and you can't do it. It's just incredible. I mean, the, the fishing's just, you can see it's depleting. And then all of a sudden they go and give him a bigger quota. But also you've got the, the other problem that you've got, Phil, is that you give people a quota for cod 
and then all of a sudden they get them in the nets, they can't help it, so you're throwing them back to die. So what is the answer? They throw them back, they don't live, so they're dying anyway, so they may as well have brought them in. So somehow something's got to be sorted out, but uh, I, I sort of think he's, he's on the right lines, Nigel. Whether I vote for him, I don't know, because I, I'm not quite happy with all the policies of the um, party, you and me. But as I say, he's certainly woke everyone up. <laughs> I suppose more and more people will follow your example of switching to fresh water, where fisheries are stocked and managed. Yeah, well, you know, these carp, they've all got names and all that, and they look after them, and they've got a life of Riley, really. I mean, I know they get hooked and brought in, but they put them in all lovely unhooking mats, they look after them, they put them back sweetly. You know, you have to take this stuff called clinic to make sure that you're antiseptic if there's any cuts on them or anything. And as I say, we went out to France, which I told you, to a month, so we won the World Championship. But that was all down to distance. And my mate, Mick Inson, he's brilliant. He can spot, like I said, onto a sixpence, you know. But as I say, it's the kind of thing where you know the fish are going to be in there, you look after them, and they're there again, aren't they? So carp fishing's on a winner, because if you keep feeding them as well, they keep growing. And some people say to me, why do you go fishing for them? You, you can't do any with them. I said, yeah, well, you, it's the sport. It's not all about eating and killing everything. It's the sport of going fishing, and some people don't see that. They all think, go and see fishing because I can eat them, and basically I'm going to do this because of that. With the carp, you put them back, put the cats back, but you know they're going to be in there next week. That's why a lot of people go, and it's very enjoyable. And, of course, the main thing is that with them cats, they really, I mean, I've caught a lot of fish in my time, and the only way I can explain to you going catfishing is I've caught some big congas in a boat, and you know yourself, you've had congas, and you know how they kick. They'll kick hard, won't they? You get one of them catfish on a lake, and I'll tell you, he kicks like a conger. He will not give up. You can't really do anything with him. So the way I'd explain catching a big catfish, it's exactly like catching a conger in a boat with no tide. So you can imagine that. And even, you know, if you get a big conger about 60, 70 pounds, they blow bubbles. Don't know if you've ever seen that. They come up by the side of the boat and they'll blow. And these catfish do that, and so you know when you've got one near the edge. He blows his ballast as such. He has a big blowout, and you know it's over 80 pounds then if he blows, you and me. And it's the same with a lot of them congas. You'll, you'll get them over 60, and if it's a flat day and you're out there, you'll see them blow. And they'll go for a last dive, and you get them up. But they blow these huge amount of bubbles out, and normally I could tell that if I had one with blowing bubbles, it would be a, a 50 plus. So it's just things that fish do. I mean, a guy caught a, a grass carp at the weekend. We was out there last week. And he had a 24-pound grass carp. And I watched it, and I... You sound a bit big Eddie there, but because you've done it before, what they do, they come straight into the net, they give up. And then when you put the net underneath them, they fly out towards the middle and actually come out the water. And I learned over the years that when you get him, get him up the net, and then as soon as you get it in the net, lift the net quickly, which you never do normally, and he hits the net and goes back in. But they smash nets up and everything, these things. They... They go absolutely wild on the bank, but when you're actually catching them, they just come straight in. They don't fight. And I've caught so many now that it happens every time, and you learn about it. You know, and this guy, I watched him net it. I was a little bit away. Well, it did, smashed the net. Then it jumped out again. It was a right palaver, and I thought, my God, you know, if I'd have just got round there, I was on a damn wall. I could have sorted it for him. But they don't know, people. You learn things about fishing. You know, you do a lot of boat fishing. And you just learn certain things that you do and things that you don't. It's like when you've got a catfish, you don't pull the line. I've seen them on telly pulling the line. 
when you just don't want to pull the line. It's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> but I've got a nice bit of footage of one guy on a video that I've done, and he, this catfish has actually bit him, and it's all on film. I'm looking forward to editing it and seeing, because uh, it's brilliant. I've, I've looked at it, and you can see this thing actually bite the glove man, you know, because we get them in with gloves. It's quite interesting, but... Uh, but I'm hoping to go back out there on the 4th of October, just four of us, to this lake, the Tangaroos. It's beautiful, it is. It was nine of us this time, so it got a bit messy with drinking and, you know, it's like. But when we go again the second time, we, we go in about October, and it's just four of us. We fish really hard, and we get some good fish out. And as you've said, as with the shore fishing, you took the freshwater specimen side of things to the highest level too. Yeah, I mean, as I say, a lot of that was down to my mate Mick, because he was so good. But it takes two to tango, and uh, it, as I said to you before, he always took the hot spot, but many a time I've come up, done a silly thing, or done something stupid and caught fish, and, you know, even in the final when he, we caught 11 fish, and I only caught one, but the fish that I got, I see, and he was well proud of me, because I see it, put his head up, I cast to it, and I got it about an hour later, and it, it could have been the one, you never know, you know, so it all counts together. But uh, we went down to France, fished against France in our Andorra, on the river, past the river lot, and uh, that was terrific, you know, I mean, we had done so well as well, we went down there and we sort of come in the first five, and I think we had 20 in each team, the sad thing was, we was picked to fish immediately next time they did it, and then we we didn't split up fishing, because we're going to have another go next year, but we drifted away, because I, I ran out, you know, got into trouble with the shop, ran out of money, and I said, mate, I don't want to do it anymore. And so we haven't fished together for three years, but we're looking forward to, we're thinking of going to this Abbey Lakes, because there's a big money match out there, and we're thinking of going there, and basically having a go out there and trying to win some money again, because we were a good team, there's no doubt about it, and uh, it was quite weird really, because you wouldn't have thought so, but I was speaking to Kimo, he's the top man, and I said, what's this Abbey Lakes? He went, oh, we don't want you there, you, you and Mick, no. You always bloody win. Get away. Go away. I ain't telling you when it is. He went. <laughs> but, uh, no, we had a lot of success, even in the British Carp Championships, you know, and uh, we got to the final a couple of times, and like everything, you need a draw with carp fishing. No matter how good you are, you need a bit of a draw. I would think we didn't have a good draw in the World Championships. We just done well. We went back the following year with long rods to defend it, and we got drawn in a uh, sort of like river type bit and you know there's a guy out there we got the biggest rods in the world trying to think about casting out a long way and there's a guy out there on a point and he, he only has to put it in under his thing and he's 50 yards past us so we never really know whether we could have done it again by casting distance because after that they use boats now big boats you know like proper rain boats and they go out and drop their bait uh, to me uh, there's no skill in that the skill is casting and fishing and now in the, in the world championship every year you can row out in a boat you can go out 300 yards, put your bait over, put it on a spot and row back again. Well, it takes a lot of skill out of it, Phil. So. so the key then is accuracy and correct feeding. Yeah, definitely accuracy, because as I say, feeding accuracy is so big. If you can put that bait out over 100 yards and you can put it right in the same spot every time, eventually then fish, especially on these big lakes like the Monts where we fished. I mean, it was a massive lake. The Orient is phenomenal, but this was a big lake. And these fish are further out quite often, you and me. They don't need to come around the edges so much, you know. What do you make of the modern carp fishing scene? Would it be fair to suggest that carp fishing almost single-handedly is what's keeping coarse fishing alive these days? Or might it ultimately turn out to be the death of it? 
Well, I think it's kind of rescued um, course fishing myself because, as I said to you earlier on, all these carp have got names and they all sort of have a quest to get them. They look after them and the fisheries make sure the fish are fed well in the winter when there's people not fishing so they put on weight. So I think it's a kind of thing where it's enhanced the fishing. I mean, for a little while there, there was a massive carp boom. I think it was about eight or ten years ago and then it died down again. But now I think it's slowly coming back again and people are, they're finding more and more leisure time. We've come out of recession and people are saying, right, I'm going to go carping for three or four days. I don't think so much, you know, like these people bought these lakes in France. People still go to France, don't get me wrong, but I think that was a mistake. English people went out there and bought lakes and everything. And I think they made a mistake really. A lot of them would like to come back now because it's like, I don't know, when you bought timeshares in Spain and all that, it's just, not happening now, is it? After a few years, it's all changed. But I think the um, commercial fisheries are doing all right, and they're putting four or five lakes on the complexes now, and you're getting one with catfishing, one with carp, so it gives you an option of what you want to do. You know, we've got one over the road called a mushroom farm, and uh, basically they've got a long snake lake, which they have for matches, you and me, and they get quite a few people in the matches fishing it, and then they've got a big lake, a specimen lake with big fish in it, and then a general lake for young people to go and catch loads of nice six, seven pounders. It's quite good in general. It's sort of like putting a lot back into the angling, really. And uh, more and more places are doing it. So I don't think there's anything against it. Do you not find that with this type of fishery in Angler, people now look down the noses at fish under 20 pounds? Everything has to be a 30 or more, which allied to all the self-hooking boat rigs and high-protein baits, is taking the whole element of angling apprenticeships away. I think it's a, a sign of the times, really. You know, you can come in a, a shop for sea fishing and I can sort of make you an instant angler within about three months' tuition, less than that. Everything's made, you, can, you don't have to make your own rigs anymore, they're all perfectly made, so I see where you're coming from. You've always got a little edge here and there, but you find it harder and harder to find the edge, you know, because everything's so advanced now that you can basically teach yourself on the internet or something, or, you know, and within minutes you're a top Charlie Angler. But I, I, I do think the top blokes have always got a little bit of an angle, and like even what I said earlier on about things, you get it in your head and you, you set yourself out a nice stall, you know what you're doing, and you'll always have a little bit of an edge, but... People are so good now, they can be good very quickly, especially if they're quite knowledgeable as well. It doesn't take long. So I do see where you're coming from. But um, you can't blame the fisheries for that, and you can't really blame the shop, because basically the shop wants to sell you the best. And it's really nice that you can come in and buy good tackle. Many years ago, you had to make all your own near enough, didn't you, as you know. What do you make of the evolution and expansion of pellets and boilies? Are these also a factor in the de-skilling of course fishing, in that if you don't use high-protein baits these days, you're now less likely to catch good specimens of other coarse fish species as a result? Yeah, I mean, when I used to fish years ago, it was bread and luncheon meat, you were me. I mean, the luncheon meat's still good, but now you've got all this stuff like fake corn, critically balanced baits. I mean, it all works, you know, but I don't think you can beat the old specials. The main ingredient is you need some good hemp. A lot of people just walk in the shop and they just buy pellets, you know, because they're cheap. But you want high oil pellets. That's a big difference. Stuff from Dynamite Baits or Rod Hutchinson Monster Crab Pellets, something like that that's all high oil halibut pellets. That helps. 
you've got critically balanced baits now, which is a big thing, where they just lift off the bottom just a little bit. Of course, when the carp are feeding hard, they'll just take it in. But one of my mates was laughing the other day about it, though. He reckons that these wafters, they call them, that are all critically balanced. He reckons the fish, when they're there, their fins are going, and it's almost like a thing at a fairground where they can't get it in their mouth. And he reckons it's a joke, some of it, if you're not careful. So you can't believe everything you read. He reckons it's like, can you imagine what I'm saying? You know, like a fairground where you've got something, you're trying to get it in your mouth, and you can't get it because it's going all over the place, you know what I mean? Because they're stirring up the bottom. But uh, I don't know, I mean, you, you've got sweet corn's always good, general baits. It's the same baits, but obviously there's, you can buy the mix now all made up, a method mix, and you can buy a spod mix. It's all got all the good stuff in it, nuts and everything. Some of the places are banned nuts, which can be a bit dangerous to the carp, their digestive system, but if they're not banned, they're a bloody good bait, there's no doubt about it. But um, as you say, it has come to really walk in the chattel shop and buy it, unfortunately. But then again, this is the bait that keeps us all going. You know, a lot of these big superstores haven't got a clue what they're selling, you know, so hopefully you can keep a step above. But are these ever-changing concoctions not a bit like antibiotics and bacteria, with the fish in this case build up a resistance to them until everything's been tried and there's nothing left? What then? The thing is, though, they feed fish on these high-protein baits, they get bigger, it's almost like us lot, you know, going down the gym. And they just get addicted to it, so they're not going to stop eating it. The carp become stronger and bigger and probably fitter. So it's almost like in the same way as us, you know, we go down the gym and you get down there and you get on steroids. And it's almost like the same kind of thing. I mean, it's probably doing the fish good in one way because it keeps them fit. <laughs> it sounds really weird, doesn't it? But that's what it is in a way. You know, high-protein baits going in and then feeding on them, they become fitter, stronger and bigger. So it's not doing the fish any harm, really. It's actually enhancing them. I don't know. There's a lot to be said for the, the float and the maggot, isn't there? And light line, which is good. Back to the basics, really. Nowadays, people use heavy line and everything's different. I don't agree with braid. I love braid for spot and markering. But braid on the main line, I'm not quite so sure because there's no giving it. I caught a 30-pound carp in JRC Lakes on braid. Obviously, you get used to it. But I found it really direct and the thing was slapping the rod at me hands. You know, it was, I wasn't impressed at all. I thought nylon's better in myself. But then, you know, if you go for a big cat and use real heavy braid, it's good sometimes because you haven't got that bow in the water of the line when you, if you're live baiting or something. I don't know, everyone's got their own ideas, you see, that's the thing. But I don't think it's a bad thing, all the baits, you know, I mean, there's so many of them now and they're, you know, it's what keeps the world going. I mean, most of the business in fishing tackle is bait now and if you get your bait right, you're halfway there. But the hair rig was the biggest thing ever. It's just magic. Change carp fishing completely. With your own specs angling hat on now, as sea angling for whatever reason slips further into decline, and with fresh still water angling able to achieve and maintain any level it desires, albeit at a cost, do you foresee a time when one or other will finally go to the wall? And are the signs of that happening already, based on what you're seeing in the tackle shop? I don't know if it'd be in my lifetime, but I think you could see that you're ending up going to places, commercial fisheries, where there's big fish in there, a bit like trout fishing really, isn't it? You go there, you pay your money, and you have a nice day. Because how bad sea fishing's going to get, I don't know. I think the boat fishing's definitely deteriorated a lot. 
as I said to you, I think at the moment the beach fish is on a high. But what happens when that food runs out on the shore? But at the moment, you go and dig black lugworm, and they're there next tide, they're there next tide, and next tide. It's incredible. But what happens when that starts to deplete? Because it will in the end. I mean, they've near enough dug out Winchelsea, which is down near me. That was the best place to dig ever. Dungeness was the best years ago. That got dug out completely. And now they get lug at Bexhill and, and Eastbourne. But what happens when that goes? I mean, I know for a fact that we used to go and get thousands of shrimps, and I used to get pints of shrimps and eat them and love them. No one goes shrimping anymore, they're gone. You can't get enough, so it's a sign of the times. Of course, the fish come in for shrimps as well as lugworm. Fortunately, the lugworm beds are still there, but when they're gone, there's no food. They won't come into the edge, will they? This is the big difference, you know. And I think eventually you might get, as I say, you'll go to places like you go trout fishing, you pay your money and you go trout fishing for the day. You'll go carp fishing and that'll be the only thing, unfortunately. But it'll still be enjoyable and it's still good fun. Look, it's something about sea fishing, you know, it's, you can eat the fish, you basically go down there and it's enjoyable to be on the shore with the sea rolling in and there's just something about it, isn't there? So I think people will go forever. So a lot of my customers, they go down there, they don't care if they catch or not. They just go down there, sit in a chair, chuck their rods out and they just enjoy it. It's a great thing if you're, Great therapy if you sort of kind of like want to go down there and relax, get away from everything. You've got to remember that a lot of anglers are like that. They're not going there for the fishing. They're going there just to relax and chill out, you know, especially in this world as we're running under a bar now everywhere, aren't we? So basically if you can sort of get yourself down there and get away from everything for a day, it's very enjoyable. So as a tackle dealer with a finger on the pulse of both aspects, is there any evidence now to suggest that one is giving away to the other, or is it still too early to say? Well, I'm a little bit biased because I've got a really good sea shop. So, you know, obviously I concentrated big time on sea, and sea fishing is, will always be good. There's match fishing, massive match fishing fraternity around Eastbourne. So, you know, we'd get a match and we'd get 30 or 40, 50 people in it. Our club matches, the Nomads Angling Club, which I'm president of, we're getting sort of like 21, 22 people at a match. And that's just a club match. So we've got one of the finest venues in the country, so we're not seeing the decline. But I know rest of the country, they'll have a match and they might get five people or they don't even have a match in certain places anymore. Whereas, you know, certain areas used to have lots of fishing competitions. So it is in decline really, but we're spoilt down here. Our shop is totally into sea fishing big time. So we're seeing a different thing. And I think you'll you go in a lot of other shops and you'll see masses of carp tackle and you'll just see a little corner for sea fishing. So I can understand it is suffering the sea fishing, probably is. But we don't see it because we're just sea fishing mad down here. We all got top grade gear, 400 pound Colmic rods. We're all using top gear. I know for a fact when Steve Allmark had the pier at Deal, I was horrified that you go on the pier at Deal and they're in the dark ages. They've got these pen reels that are no brakes that have come out the arc, worth about nothing. You and me, you come into Eastbourne, you, you'd never see a guy with anything like that. They've all got top-notch gear because they've been brought up from being 12 years old that they've got, had good anglers in Eastbourne around them. So therefore, the, the first thing they want is an Abu 6500 or a 7HT mag or a, a real... 525 mag or a top class reel, you know what I mean? They don't want no rubbish. So we have got a little bit of an area where everything's a little bit different. So 
it's just one of them places where you, sometimes you can't compare it. But I'd imagine in, in Shore and everything, it's all carp. Based on all that, would it be fair to suggest that people in our age group, say age 60 and upwards, have seen the best of what sea angling has to offer, and that chances are younger people will generally only get to see the kinds of fish we caught in old photographs? Yeah, I definitely think um, it was massive in the 90s and even before that, and I think we've had the best of it, really. Just reflecting on, like I said, when I went to Gambia, the first time I went was just awesome. And then you go again and it's not quite so good. And I've watched that. I went 10 years. And the last year we're scratching about trying to catch a fish. And it's quite soul-destroying, really. And it's the same all round in... I'll probably get excited because Eastbourne's fairly good and we catch a few fish. But we certainly used to catch more fish years ago. But I must admit... I think Dan Wood, a local lad here who fishes for our team pirates, he's moved to another team now, but, I mean, he had something like, I think it was 64 fish, right? This is down Langley Point. Three-hour match, 64 fish he caught, and he weighed in about, I think it was about 38 pound of fish. And that's all whiting, so it's certainly not deteriorating completely down here. But I think in other ways it is, you know, in different places. I mean, some species just make a big comeback. I mean, there was loads of whiting for the last two years. And they're still here in the summer when you're still catching sizable whiting. And you just never used to. So some things are thriving. But in general, as you said, the fishing's getting harder. We've definitely had the best of it. And uh, luckily we were there to see it. Just unfortunately, it was really upset that when I was 10 or 11... I wasn't quite there, and, you know, I watched my brother-in-law catching huge cod on the beach, and, of course, he was 10 years older than me, and basically I, I missed a lot of the good of it, you know, the big fish. But that's one of them things, isn't it? I can remember walking Langley Point, and I walked back. They used to have a tram down there, and uh, I walked from the tram line at the end back through Langley Point, and I was just a kid, and I walked over every groin, and every groin I went over, every other one, there was a bloke there fishing, and he had a 12-pound-plus cod next to him. And it was just horrendous, you see it. It was just every other groin you went as a cod. And now that's all gone, and Dungeness was the same. And you go to Dungeness there, and they go, oh, you should have been here yesterday, there was a load caught, but I don't believe all that. I mean, it's there's still cod there, don't get me wrong, but not like it used to be. It was magic years ago, so we probably have had the best of it, Phil, you know. Which is exactly the reason why recordings such as this are important in showing people that with good fishery management and workable fisheries policies, empty seas are not inevitable, and that potentially good bags of prime fish should be the norm for those with the ability to catch them. So a very big thank you to Tony Kirridge for providing the historical detail here. 